Hello everyone, welcome. This is Quantum Nurse and I am Grace Asagra, your holistic registered nurse. I'm using alternative energy medicine and holistic, indigenous holistic healthcare so I could help people who are stressed caregivers, especially those suffering with their digestive symptoms, sleep, and you know that those when you don't have as much energy. So I created this podcast so I can reach out more to most of you and whoever is willing to co-create with me and build like a little community, especially for dementia caregivers when at this time of this unprecedented, unprecedented time, it's really tricky on a lot of, um, uh, a lot of caregivers lost their, their ability or opportunity to have a respite because now the daycare centers are closed and a lot of senior centers are closed. But anyway, here I gave birth to this podcast and welcome. And today we have a, our special guest is no other than Bill, Beth Tilburg. Okay, and welcome Beth and um, welcome to our audience as well. Hello, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you. Um, Beth is all the way in British Columbia, so time difference, but this uh, internet thing, and with, with, with intention, we become closer, closer to all who are listening to us. So let me tell you a little, um, just a, a little brief information about Beth, but as she goes along with our conversation, she will tell us more, okay? So Beth is a counselor and a teacher. She is a mother of three adult children. She has Bachelor of Arts honors in English literature and literary criticism. And she has an MA in counseling psychology. She has also a diploma in floral art design and certified risk and threat assessment counselor. So listening to that is just like a perfect person for us to have for today's unprecedented time. And we're, our topic will focus on making life's decisions. So welcome and thank you Beth for being here with us. And I'm hoping that we can really um, have that conversation where we can address some needs or just give some good tips and suggestions for caregivers who may, be, who may just want to have a little bit of that clarity in making life's decisions. Because lately, what I see on caregivers is especially they don't really want to let go of their loved ones with dementia, but some it's been several months already, Beth, that they don't have a break. So like what last, last week, it's going to two weeks now, what happened is one, one um, client of mine and she ended up in the, in the hospital for um, colon obstruction but she lives by herself and she's really doing her best to make herself happy. And when I say doing her best, even in the senior facility that she lives, that at first some people get upset with her because she doesn't remember to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, she has that cognition problem already. So she's really doing her best. Then she remembers, she, she tells me she remembers. But my sad, the sad um, news that the family is contemplating is to make that decision that they might look, start looking for a nursing home for her. And if I will put in my few cents, if the family can handle it and she's safe and they could still check on her, she's really, she's still not that, can, I call it a nursing home candidate. So maybe we could begin in, you know, situation like that, okay? Okay, Grace, that is a, a lot going on there for that person and for their family. And, 
Yes, I completely understand that given the times that we're in, um, dealing with people that have those extra struggles is even more difficult. Finding a way to move away from it and to re-energize yourself, to look after yourself is even, even harder. So if I, if I could say anything at all to your client, um, I would say that looking at your life right now while you are caring for this loved one who has dementia, that I would ask you to look at it very, very broadly. And I think there's a bit of a trap that happens. You get focused on tomorrow and today and this minute. And so you become very narrow in your focus. And all of the energy, the negative energy that comes from dealing with somebody who is so needy is what you're absorbing. And so my suggestion would be to look more broadly and to be asking yourself at times, what is it that I need and what is it that I want right now? And if in a given moment where the client, your, your loved one is being particularly taxing and you are feeling your energies absolutely depleted, you need to ask yourself, what do I need right now? What do I want right now? And it's always important to go with what you need. You may want your loved one to be better. You may want them to see you, recognize you, respond differently. But that is not going to be helping you. What will help you is, okay, I'm exhausted. They're in a particularly difficult moment right now. What do I actually need to do for myself? so that I can still be present and help them. On another level, outside of that one-on-one -on -one working with that, with that loved one, I would suggest that they take time for themselves and during that time for themselves, that they work on learning how to compartmentalize. This is what the term that we use in, in my work, is putting things away um, in a place where they belong. You think about it as like a library and books go in a certain order, you know, on shelves in a certain way and they're put away in such a way so that you can find them again easily because it's all ordered. So if you take these moments, these hard moments and you put them away, they're not gone. You're not pretending they don't exist. You're just organizing them in a way so that they're not always present with you and not always weighing down on you. It's, be, it's good to hear that, um, especially really listening to what they need. Because uh, sometimes it could also change day by day, right, Beth? Yeah. Right? And giving themselves a break and a space, and, you know, a little bit of a distance may even help them to have that clarity to make that decision. And yes. Right? Yes, I think, I think it's, you know, if you're going to be a caregiver, no matter, no matter what area you enter in, whether it's medicine, whether, it, whether it's um, you know, physiotherapy, whether it's teaching, whether it's nursing, a firefighter, whatever it is that you enter into where you are giving of yourself to others and maybe on a continual basis, and particularly in the area you're talking about, who, who grows up thinking that's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna look after my mother when she gets dementia it's not something that you plan for it's something that happens to you and so when you find yourself in that position I think it's very very important for you to step back and to not think of it as a selfish action that actually is an absolutely necessary action you need to do self-care and you need to figure out what that is you need to take time and maybe you don't have a lot of time. So you have to look at it reasonably. How much time can I have? And how can I make that bit of time or a lot of time really count for me? I've even had met that situation or a family where the, the, the children were just on their 30s. And so their mother was in their 50s, but at, at that age, she already had dementia. And this uh, young, young mother has a, uh, a young child, 
but at the same time she was also pregnant so it was kind of like too much just to see the picture of the responsibility that she has so that kind of again brings me that to that imagination that this strange times that we are in the vulnerable population will would be the elderly and the little ones it's like and of course we're all in the middle and to handle that so as an educator and and i'm glad that you you have your artistic diploma i i call that because of florid all design because i think it's so helpful to be holistic when you are also artistic you know, it just does something to your brain your whole being i wonder what we can suggest more or offer more or, you know with this teachings for the children i don't know what's happening in canada on your end but here i just realized that the children have like they start with like maybe 30 minutes of lesson think on the first day and so maybe they they will progress and so i thought now that more than ever the parents have to do much more responsibility on that homeschooling which is precious so maybe this you know you know what what do you think they can still do and to alleviate or to first to have that education that the children are necessary right it is definitely um difficult times grace with respect to education and children in my work i work at what's called the elementary level which is kindergarten to grade seven and then i also work in high school and here in in british columbia in the vancouver area um, the provincial government has made decisions broadly about how children will return to school and then the local district it's called they determine what actually needs to happen in our district because of course if you live in vancouver which is a metropolitan city the needs of those people are very different than people who live maybe in the okanagan which is a wine growing wine producing um, area so it's agrarian very different needs also very different size of schools so different programs that can be offered so where i live which is in the metropolitan area young children are doing a gradual re-entry like you just um, spoke to but at the end of the day they will be at school five days a week and they will be in the class five hours a day and they will be in what's called cohort groups which means that they will have a set group of students that they do everything with all day and that is in the hopes of eliminating cross-contamination by mixing with all three or 600 kids, whatever it is that's in the school, say at playtime, recess or lunch. So that's how kindergarten, or that's how elementary school is being constructed. High school is different. It's cohort groups of 120. So that's a lot more cross-contamination that can happen. But also at high school, they're asking the students to wear masks when they're in a setting where they will be interacting with many more, for example, at lunch or in the hallways between classes when classes change. At elementary, they're not asking the children to wear masks except when they walk through the hallways. But the impact on the young children, I think this is where it is going to be potentially quite profound. If you think about little people, um, there's a famous experiment. It's called the still face experiment and you can Google it. And it's a one-year-old child playing with their mother. And there's no language being spoken that, that is intelligible. You couldn't say that's English or that's Tagalog or whatever, you can't say that. It's just their language and so it involves some sounds but it involves a lot of movement and um, touching between them and this conversation between them starts with them just looking at each other and moves into a really positive exchange where the baby's laughing and the mom's laughing and they're touching each other and then the mom 
moves away from the baby. She turns her face and she makes sure there's no expression whatsoever on her face. And she turns back to the baby. And within two minutes, the baby goes from that gurgling, bubbling, happy, joyful to crying and very distressed and wanting to get out of the chair. It's, it's really, really an interesting experiment to, to see. The outcome of that, the psychology, it's the famous one in behavioral psychology, child behavioral psychology, is that as an infant, if you don't have that connection, that visual and physical connection with your caretaker, with your loved ones, then developmentally there will be delays and there will be things that don't develop. So if you fast forward to kindergartens, they're now six, and they're coming into a classroom where their trusted adult is wearing a mask. And so most of the expression, even the sound is muffled. So most of the facial expressions, subtleties, are first of all, not being taught. And secondly, they're not being received by the child and the exchange is not working either. So that's an alienating experience for young children. We simply have to stop doing that because we are impacting their growth and their socialization and the development of their brain. But we're in an argument about it. We have, you know, certain parts of our society, our health ministry saying, this is the science and this is what has to happen. And then we have people on my side of things, which is, yes, I believe in a lot of science, but I also believe in psychology, which sometimes is not called a science. And I believe in human emotions and I believe in connectiveness between people. And when you stop doing that, then we're in, in dangerous territory. So my hope is that a lot of teachers will know this. They will take the kids outside. They will spend as much time as possible in nature. They'll use nature to teach the lessons rather than a chalkboard or a computer. And that way, maybe we can work our way around the impact of COVID and the, you know, the protocol of wearing masks and that sort of thing. That's, that's very sad, really. And I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm going to check that um, experiment. You know, mm -hmm. We're not much different from animals because even the animals if are like you know, those that are, um, they, they adapt from the, in from the shelter and they do change a lot of their behavior if they're adopted early and given a lot of that love and attention. Um, yeah, I hear really stories about that when uh, the babies, babies also, okay, the baby may not wear the mask, but the parents looking at the baby, they wear masks. So it makes me happy when I'm, I'm outside, which is rare because there are many things that doesn't make me happy looking at the, what's going on. But when I see the, like a young couple and they, they didn't have a mask and their baby and they're walking, I said, wow, that's a joy to see because how can you deprive that connection? Mm -hmm. Primarily that baby, that's, that's the person, the smile that she, they, the baby trusts. Yeah, so it, it, that's wonderful to know. And like yes this weekend my little grandbabies were with me so we made sure that we even took them to the beach to walk and they could just you know play much there and and where there were is a beach where they people bring their dogs as well so it's really pretty cool yeah so when um were for you beth you were you were is you were doing this counseling and you know in face-to-face -face, right before yeah and then so you were d really affected also with this situation right see sometimes I didn't oh I don't even want to call it what they are calling it because I don't want to label it that way <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no I understand that you don't want to give it credibility All right. yeah, yeah. And, and then how would you be, um, now, now do, you do you still have to be in the school 
And yeah, we um, we were scheduled to go for what's called our spring break, which is usually just prior to Easter. And um, we didn't come back from spring break in March until the beginning of June. And then June, we tried coming back as an experiment with lots of protocol in place to protect everybody. Um, and that didn't go very well. Most kids did not come back. But between March and June, I still had a fair number of, um, if you will, clients, young children, who suffered a lot from anxiety. And with the change in how we lived our lives, them now being at home with a parent, at least one, who usually was at work, who wasn't used to being at home, their anxiety, the child's anxiety increased um, exponentially. But at the same time, so did the parents. Here was a real significant change in the, what we call the points of connectiveness in a family. If you think about it, typically um, those families I'm talking about, the parent sees them, connects with them early in the morning, gets them out of bed, maybe gets them breakfast, packs up the lunch and then scoots them out the door or maybe even drives them to school. There's not another point of contact until 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon when they go home and then it's some sort of playtime depending on the age of the child or it's homework time. Maybe they eat dinner together. Often families don't anymore. And then it's bedtime. So there's not that many hours of the day really when there's a lot of contact. The more contact there is, the more potential there is for things to go sideways. And when you add the stress that the parents now under, because now they have to teach, they have to become a teacher, and that was never their goal in life. They have to be the disciplinarian. They have to make sure they're looking after all areas of nutrition. So many more elements are added to that adult's life that they didn't ask for, and, and often it's not welcome. So you have this stress, this anxiety, this angst that is running throughout the household and the children are sponges and they absorb all of it. So it is a bad recipe. It is a very bad recipe and it takes a lot of intervention. So my time then with most of my families was done over the phone. The district was concerned about um, something like Zoom because it was intrusive and I was coming into their home and they were coming into my home and the district just felt for safety reasons that wasn't the way to go. So it was a telephone conversation and that is alienating anyway. If you can imagine trying to talk to a six-year-old, a seven-year-old over the phone at length about how they're doing, well, it's, it's a challenge. So it didn't really go well, Grace, um, for me in my practice with, with those children. Basically, all I was really able to do was stay connected to them. And when we got back to school, I could, um, you know, increase that because we were able to be together outside. And hopefully, in my new school that I'm moving to, my office will be big enough that they can come to my office and we can be six feet apart and we can still talk on a you know private um, confidential level where they feel safe and secure. Before this happened, when you said they already had their anxiety anyway, their own stress, that's why you are there to provide them support. What, what was the usually like the main cause of their anxiety? Um, there's there's a saying in, in my work that if you have an anxious child, you very often have an anxious adult whose anxiety you know, was never diagnosed. It just simply wasn't something that happened 20, 30 years ago. People just coped. And if you were um, you know, filled with anxiety, people spoke of you as just being kind of a nervous type. But um, often it's undiagnosed anxiety in the parent that is transferred to the child. 
And so for the most part, what I see in schools is I see a, a separation anxiety. They, they don't want to say goodbye to mom or dad, um, or it's a, a school anxiety. It's just they're afraid that they're going to not perform well at school, not going to please everybody else. Um, or it's what's called the generalized anxiety disorder, which means that in, in many domains, they experience anxiety. And now, and now we, that you had some um, interactions with them, you, did, did, what do they say? <laughs> I'm curious what they say. What the, the children say? Yeah. Like they, they love it. They, they absolutely love it. Um, and, you know, I really think, Grace, that what it really, I mean, I have, I have a kit bag of, you know, uh, skills that I have and tools I use and, and different ways of approaching the anxiety with them. And I, I go at it from a cognitive behavioral approach. And so I'm dealing with the body as well as many other factors that I eventually get into with, with the parents, the home life, the amount of time they spend playing Fortnite, um, you know, all, all those sorts of things. But really, I think it, it comes down to they get time with me and they all think of me as their grandmother. And so they get time with me and we sit together in my office and we, we don't just talk because they're little and you can't just talk and actually really get anywhere. So we usually enter into maybe some art therapy, things like that. And um, over time, they eventually begin to talk about the things that are truly bothering them. But really, I think it's the time with me alone, somebody who is intentionally listening and remembering what they say the next time they come, who is paying attention to them, who is allowing them to do what they want to do. There's not a lot of rules in my office and there's not a, a time frame. Okay, you have to stop doing this thing that you finally found flow in and you have to now come over and do this other thing that you hate. It's not like that. So all in all, I think they feel cared for. I think they feel someone's really paying attention to them and someone's really listening, no matter what they talk about. And I think at the end, that is really what helps them relax and be calmer. And it helps them learn to use their breathing exercises and it helps them to use imagery because they feel okay when they're you know, when they're in that, that office space with me. Is that, at that young age, will that be also a good age that is just perfect for helping them make their own decisions that could be a preparatory for their adulthood? Oh, absolutely, Grace. I think the way we do things here in, in British Columbia is backwards. In a high school, we have a counselor for every 300, 350 students. In an elementary school, we have a counselor for every 1,200. And I think it's opposite. If you work with these little people very early, when they're trying to understand how to function in the world, you can make phenomenal changes for them. They can see themselves as strong, they can see themselves as resilient, they can see themselves as brave, because you help them see that, yes, you have this challenge, but look what you did, and look what you are doing, and you change their brains, I believe, and you give them skills that they can, whenever that, you know, ugly little amygdala starts going bananas on them, they can recognize it, as an adult, you know, they're about to give a speech at a board meeting and the amygdala starts going crazy and they can just say, oh, I know what to do about this. I learned this a long time ago. I just need to breathe. I need to calm myself. I need to think some imagery and I'm going to be just fine. So, yes, I, I think it goes with them lifelong if you teach them early enough. But this is so true because that's really like, and, you know, everyone talks about the subconscious mind, the conscious mind, and that's still part of the subconscious mind. That's extension. And so why not give a lot of attention for that? And eventually I look at it also, Beth, as like even 
economic, financially uh, sustainable because now it seems like everyone who's finished their degrees is still has to go on and take some more courses <laughs> because there's still so much more that you need to be able to fully function in life. Mm -hmm. so, can we just have been educated, you know, before? Yeah. So, so if you if you are the if you are in the position, Beth, that to make like a a change, what would be maybe one or two changes in education that you would, uh, you know, would want to see and really tell people or <laughs> whoever is in your, uh, or, you know, in your or, or for your authority to be able to do some make some change. Oh boy, Grace, the utopia that we all hope for. It's funny that you should ask that question because I think most people, when they go into teaching, they see it as um, a vocation more than a job. And they look at the privilege of being able to work with young people and, and uh, help them with their growth and their maturation and their learning. And then you get hired, and you get put into a system that has good intentions, but it's operated by people who are not in a classroom every day. And there's always the underlying real driver in things, and that's economics. It, it can't cost too much. Otherwise, who's going to pay for it? So that, that is a big factor in, for me in imagining the changes that I think would be profound if we could make them. So lots of money and then we look at every single child's learning needs and their unique personalities and we teach according to that. So for example, um, it was uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, a French philosopher in 1700s, wrote a book called Emile, and it was the education of Emile. And of course, in the 1700s, they didn't really think about educating girls. They were just educating boys. But his idea was that um, you take children with a very trusted adult, somebody who's also very educated, knowledgeable, and has an affinity for that child. They like that child. And that child spends time in the day with that person. And in the, it's experiential learning. So in the day, for example, if they're out in the forest and the child notices the stream that they've gone by on a daily basis almost, it always goes the same direction. The water always runs down. And the child says to this professor, if you will, this trusted adult, why does the water always run downstream? This is an educational moment. It's a moment for that learned person to teach so many things that at that moment are relevant to the child because they ask the question. That is the type of learning that I think would be so beneficial to so many children. But having that trusted adult who genuinely cares for them, you know, all teachers have to care for all 30 students who are sitting in front of them. The truth of it is, you can't feel that same level of love and affection for each individual one. You feel it really strongly for some, a little less for some, and not so much for others. And children know that, they absorb that. And I can't think of anything worse than a, a little child sitting in a classroom for five hours a day, five days a week with a person who doesn't really like them that much or get them, you know, just doesn't understand them. So that would be the first thing, Grace, is it would be a matching up of the child to the appropriate adult who could take them on that journey. And then I look at how schools are set up and it's because of economics to sort of treat all children the same in terms of the delivery of the message. And the message is you will conform. You will come out of this 12, 13 years, a certain citizen, you will, you will act a certain way, 
um, you will know how to mind your manners, you will mind your P's and Q's, and you'll fit into society just fine. So in that group of children, there's the ones that are for perfectly fine with that. Um, they form nicely. Then there's others who you have to sort of push them along and they conform eventually. And then there's another group that we sort, sort of could say they deform. They don't fit and they are the outliers. If they're lucky, they can stay fitting in, but so many of them don't. They end up not being a part of that system. And for the rest of their lives, they are the outlier. They're, they're on the outside. And in my mind, those are very special people. Those are people we should all be listening to. You know, when the whole class is sitting there and 29 kids are going, okay, and one puts his hand up and says, but what about this? That's, that's the diamond. That's what we should be listening to. So in a very long way, Grace, those are the two things that I would want to see change in education if we could do that. I guess that's why you're not you're not in politics. Because <laughs> it reminds me of the political system as well. You know, one could have a good intention and then it's just like, what, what did I get myself into? And for those who are guided, they even know not to get into. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. Still, that's still more powerful. So that's why there's a lot of... Uh, people doing their like you and me doing our thing on the side because that's still power when you do something profound really sincere from your heart then you just continue and go on uh, and, uh, and and that concept of like the one on one or just the, and another adult that reminds me of indigenous people and communities that there's really like the that's they don't call it and they, there was maybe no term as education. They just say, go and help your mother do cook, go and do the laundry, go and do, you know, just be around the adult. Yeah. Sometimes even you don't know whether you like that you're thinking of being whatever is the adult you're hanging out with, but still just be ar ar around them. And then when you said, okay, why the, the, the water goes down, I remember when my son was still small and we used to, he used to ride a bike because we live in town and all the activities that he, I, I introduce him to all curricular activities is, can be, we can walk or he can ride a bike because I want to be in town. And, and so, so he can be uh, sustainable and self-sufficient, know how to cross. And I and the hospital I was working with is really like just a couple of blocks from me, from our house. So it was perfect location. So we go back and, and then suddenly one day he said, do you know how many times we keep going back to the same, in the same street? I said, oh, I never really thought of that. And it was like maybe four years old. Then he said, can I? You, we always go back this way. How many times a day? <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots of opportunities to um, teach children in in a completely different way. I remember a colleague of mine. He was from England, and he became very frustrated with the system there, and thought maybe coming over here, he he might be able to explore things. He was brilliant, and his idea was what he called a constructivist school which would be absolutely wonderful. And it was, you know, now we call them sort of four schools or project schools. And the way he explained it to me was, well, you have this group of children and you're gonna build a sailboat, really, truly build a sailboat. So you have to have teachers who know a lot of different things and have a lot of different skills. And in the building of the sailboat, um, you learn math because you have to measure, you have to cut, you learn all about navigation, you learn about astrology, you learn about um, sewing, you have to make the sails, you learn um, maybe some poetry, you learn, oh, you just learn everything, but it's all in context of making that sailboat. And at the end of it, you have the learning, which is almost an aside, but you have a sailboat. I mean, it's, you know, it's wonderful. You cannot beat that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and if that's the type of school, I think everyone would want to be in school and will never quit school. Yeah. It's always relevant and they could bring, uh, bring that reflection outside of school. So yeah. like, then, you know, it's been really a while it, when my little grandbabies were with me and then they were, when the, when the door opened and he, he this uh, five-year-old five said, oh, you know, there's a virus outside. So I oh. said, what did you say? He said, there's a virus outside. I said, oh, okay, yeah, but they're inside too. You know? <laughs> then, then, they're all over, they're all over. So it's okay, it's okay. They're, they're, they're outside, inside, they're on the ground, they're, they're just all over. Then so then, I, so then I had to say, you don't have to be scared of the virus, you have to make friends with the virus, remember? Because, you know, they're just, just like you, you're here, so they're here too. So yeah. You make friends with the virus. And how do you make friends? If you eat better, you sleep more, and then you'll be happy. You know, you do things to make friends. So I think those are the last few um, statements that I'm hoping that they would remember because they just spent with me like three days. So yeah. next time, you know, they, they, they will have a different conversation of what they hear. Because I, I had to take that opportunity to speak to them about the virus. I didn't want to open it until they say something because I don't know what they're thinking about that, you know. And 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 as much as as much as we say we don't want the kids to be all over social media, but that's what they're learning now, intentionally learning. So we just hope that they can absorb the good things and leave the other things not very good. Um, yeah, because I didn't know that, but now I know that they even have like little messenger account for little kids. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly intrusive, Grace. It's, it's so hard to govern, so hard to marshal, but I really think that parents can do this. I, I am a little upset at schools allowing so much time for children to be on, um, you know, EMF devices and blue screens and that sort of thing. But at home, parents can definitely step into that parenting role and limit the amount of time children spend on it and definitely be watching for what it is that's popping up on the right and popping up on the left and they're clicking on. It definitely has to be supervised all the time. Yeah, and then when you mention about the science, um, I all I know is if there's alternative science in healthcare, there's alternative science in education. There's an, everything. There's an alternative, and in my experience and observation, the alternative ones are the ones that are more relevant and more responsive to the needs. So. I don't know, you know, so when people say, okay, they, you should do their new research, fact check, and uh, read more, um, but where are you getting your information? It's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. And when these things bring confusion and division among friends, Beth, all I could say is that let the source, let the divine just really guide us that we don't break our spirit. Yeah, yeah. or else it seems like some people may just go down the rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to tread very, very lightly when I uh, work with families. And I, I always work with families because if I start with the child, that's just a part of their day. And I definitely have to work with the parents to help them understand how they can put things in place to change the child's level of anxiety and fear. And so part of my conversations are often around nutrition and diet um, the amount of outside time they have, um, what sort of games they play, the very direct one-on-one -on -one contact with adults, conversation rather than TV or video, all of that stuff I, I believe really impacts children and their development. And so asking parents to change, it's, um, it's very intrusive. And so I have to be very, very careful and 
sort of put out a feeler how much can I say to this person? What articles can I push their way? What, you know, what websites can I direct them to and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really touchy and you can definitely, um, you can damage relationships in a, in a really profound way for sure. Yeah. And you just really have as for you as a counselor and as a professional, you just do your best and you just and let go of whatever the outcome would be you know you may have that vision so like for for i'm sure they're hurting also so like beth in your life have you been in that position when you feel like you're really have no choice and you're stuck in that rabbit hole oh yes i've had i've had several moments like that grace where um, I, I tend to be kind of tenacious. I tend to, you know, just push and push and push, um, believing that it will work out. This, this um, negativity is a temporary piece and I just have to push through it and, and it'll all be fine. And then I've had times in my life when there were external forces that did have control over me and it was in, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing really important, but in terms of, say, for example, financial, when you're a single mom raising three kids and suddenly you lose all your income, it, where I live, you know that um, there are forces out there and there are um, organizations, there's government that is going to be looking at you and if they don't think you can afford to raise your children, then they're going to try to step in or they're going to try to remove them from you. And that particular rabbit hole was one of the scariest things I've ever experienced in my life. And as loud as I was screaming back, you know, no, I'm going to push through, I'm going to push through, the walls kept feeling like they, they were maybe too much for me and that they were going to overcome me. But they didn't. And so each time that you go through one of those episodes, you know from the previous one that you will be okay and that you do just have to hold on to what you believe to be true. And you do just have to direct your energies the best you can. And it will work out. It will be okay. So what was your, the best advice that you ever received, Beth? Oh, that's a tough one, Grace. <laughs> I think it was probably from a counselor. I think when I was, I was a single mom and I had three children under the age of six and I was doing university. I was finishing, I was doing a degree. And um, I had some moments where I had a lot of self-doubt and they had counseling available at the university. So I went to see um, a counselor and I laid, up, I laid things out for her and she looked at me and she said, just believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. That's all you have to do. Let the noise from the outside simply dissipate. It's, it's just background. Listen to yourself and believe in yourself and you will do this. And I, I remember her name was Barbara, and I, I walked out of her office thinking, if she believes that about me, why can't I believe that about me? And it was so loving. It was, it was like having big arms wrapped around me saying, you're fine. You know, you will be okay. And just keep going. It, it was, yeah, that was an important moment for me. Wow. Sometimes that one person, I think, if not all, most of us have that one person that have made some aha moments for us. Mm -hmm. and, and what makes you happy, Beth? Oh, boy, what makes me happy? I love to garden, and hence the diploma in floral art design. I love to arrange, do flower arranging. That just, that is my flow. I can completely forget everything when I'm doing that. I'm, I'm just completely focused on it. 
And it's wonderful because at the end of it, you actually have something you can keep looking at, which is nice too. Yeah, gardening, definitely, um, flowers, all sorts of gardening. I love growing my own vegetables. I love that. I love having my hands in the dirt. And I love when spring comes and you have so much to look forward to. It's, you know, the beginning of life. And it's a metaphor for everything, that there's always a new beginning and a new chance. And I think that's what I, I love about it. And that's why it makes me so happy. And I love my grandchildren to pieces. They bring me such joy. And I, every, every tradition, every holiday now is all shiny again. It's all new again because we're seeing it through the eyes of the grandchildren. And that is, it's just so wonderful. It's, it's just wonderful spending time with them. And cooking. That's my other happiness. I love making food. I love serving. I love having lots of people over. I love that. That, that makes me really happy. It exhausts me, but it's, it, it's like, it's like a, you know, a full day of skiing on a really cold day. When you get in the car and you drive home, you're just so happily exhausted. And, and that's, yeah, that's how it makes me feel. I have to make sure I visit you when I'm in the area. So you I can absolutely will. You can feed me. <laughs> yeah. I love you, tasting someone's cooking because because it feels like there's so much love in the preparation. So Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there is. It's true. It's true. Yeah. If you love what you're doing, somehow it comes out in the cooking. Yeah. And uh, and then if there is anything more that you want to change in your life, what would that be? You know, it's, it's funny because um, right now I'm doing this course and it's called Business Accelerator. And it's about basically being your own boss and pursuing your own dreams, I guess, in a way. But at the same time, um, monetizing your um, intellectual property. And I have always thought of money as being um, a temptation and that it could be a very negative thing. And it could change your life, yes, but maybe in some bad ways. And so I was, I think, really always uh, kind of afraid of having a lot of discretionary income that I could do whatever with. But through this process right now that I'm, that I'm going through, I'm thinking very hard about it. And I can see, you know, lots of opportunity for me to be able to, you know, that school I talked about, <laughs> you know, if I was lucky enough to be that successful, that I could use that money to do things like that. And so that would not just reward me, but it, it would, um, it would change things for some, you know, children who maybe don't have any, any opportunities. Is that like in the next five or 10 years? Oh, it's gotta be pretty quick. <laughs> Grace, I'm, <laughs> I'm no spring chicken. <laughs> I don't see that's the, there's an advantage when you're getting older and having more years, because like you're more decisive. <laughs> you have to be. So what is your success secret? Do you have any? Oh, you know, I, I've never thought of myself as successful, which is, which is interesting. I, I, I don't think I have achieved any level of success that I um, can sort of turn around and say, bravo, well done. I, I don't know. Uh, well, I asked that question because for me, going through that college, doing, you know, managing to raise three kids and that just, you know, all that anxiety to make sure that your kids are with you and they grow up to be <laughs> decent citizens. That's a lot of, and then you're in a system that your heart is long to share more, but you feel a little bit like choked or something. So, and, you're there and, you're, and you're now here you are talking to me. That's success. So you have a success secret. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. <laughs> you're mindful, you know, you, you do your best, but at the same time, it's okay. 
if, if what you imagine doesn't happen, it's okay. You just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> so I really appreciate your, your presence. And, and if there's any more you want, um, well, let's say there is uh, someone of, when you were young and you were, uh, you, you were raising your kids, what, what would be the best advice you would give them? If I was young again, Grace? Like if, if someone listening now who might be in your oh. situation where they have to raise their own, they have some divorce issues or whatever, relationship issues, what would be your best advice? Oh boy, I've really thought about that a lot. You know, when I look back at raising my kids and uh, what I was doing all the time, and, and that's kind of it. I was doing, I was, you know, there's an expression, I was dancing as fast as I could, trying to juggle all the balls and, and make sure that everything, well, really looked good from the outside too. I was pretty concerned about that. So if I had, if I was able to give advice to somebody who is interested, um, I would tell them to find as much time as you can to just play. Just play with your children. Just be with them in light moments, not being the disciplinarian, not being the taskmaster, not being, you know, the one with all the rules. Just play, laugh, have fun, see them as people and let them see you, the whole of you, you know, not just this person who has so much to do, but as a person who loves them and cares for them and can play with them. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I like play. <laughs> <laughs> I work hard, but I like play too. Yeah. Uh, it, and any last um, advice for all the stressed caregivers? Well, um, I think it's really important for those stressed caregivers to put things into perspective. This isn't forever. This is a moment in time. It is a moment in your life when you're being called to do something really challenging. But if you dedicate yourself to it, if you look after yourself, when you come out the other end, you will be proud of what you did and how you did it. You won't have regrets. You won't be asking yourself, oh, should I have, should I have done this? Should I have done that? You will have done everything you possibly can do and that love that you had for your loved one, they will know. They will know all about that. And so you can feel good about what you did. So try to, I often tell people, don't future think. But in this particular case, yeah, do take a look at things 10 years from now and know where you want to be and how you want to feel. And where can they get their information, Beth, if they have to get in touch with you? Because... Soon you'll be doing all your online help people. Right. And, and Grace, that's what I'm in the process of. I'm, I am not a, a, a techie person whatsoever. Um, until two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I never used Facebook. I, I never made a vlog. I, I didn't know any of that. So I don't have that available yet, but I definitely will. It's coming up in a few weeks. So that, that will be available. And then anytime uh, it's available, Beth, you just send me the link or, you know, and I will update your information in, in, the, uh, in this description of this episode. Okay. So, Thank you so much, Grace. And then if you want to um, give me that information again about that experiment, so, so that yeah. whoever may want to look at it, check it, and I could add that information. Absolutely. Would you uh, like me to text that to you? or? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will. So we thank you. And, um, you know, when it comes to conversation about life, stress, anxiety, we can go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. and, um, but the bottom line is we just really need to just always reach out to whoever we can trust and there be there, even from a distance. So thank you, yes. audience. And I, Beth, I'll, you, I will share a quantum affirmation to our audience. And I encourage the listeners and viewers to um, have a, an affirmation and that you can 
repeat loud in the morning three times at noon and in the evening and just feel the word for me they were they're helpful so what i got today and when i shuffle my cards and i said what would what would be with intention you pull the card and it says passion and enthusiasm so each morning i arise filled with enthusiasm for the coming day i look forward to my work each day i love meeting new people i am thankful for the blessings and opportunities that arise each morning i arise filled with enthusiasm for the coming day i look forward to my work each day i love meeting new people i am thankful for the blessings and opportunities that arise each morning i arise filled with enthusiasm for the coming day i look forward to my work each day i love meeting new people i am thankful for the blessings and opportunities that arise that's perfect for what we're doing so yep yeah. feel that and in my language i say mabalos this is quantum nurse grace asagra and my website is graceasagra.com and you can find me on facebook and other social media and we're trying to just be there and connect with you although you know we try to have have our own limitations because you know that there's some things that we have to put under control when it comes to social media but here we are for you and if you like it if you like this episode please share it to others write some comments check it in the youtube and here's your help mabalos bye grace thank you thank you